what the Go Real Business shows, it, it's given us and given the business a voice to say what the Scottish economy could be. I hope that driving enterprise and business is at the heart of whoever is running any government. We believe in people striving, working hard, taking on people, creating the jobs. And we have to make it that we are so attractive for people to come here and to open businesses. But at the moment, it looks like when you listen to startups and scale-ups, it's the opposite. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thomas, good morning. Good morning, Willie. How are you? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I think we can probably start the show this week with talking about all things budgets. All things budgets, yes. Yeah. So, the Scottish budget passed and the UK budget is coming up this week on March the 6th. Yeah. So, do, do you want to remind listeners what the Scottish budget looks like, Willie? Because it was quite controversial. Yeah, well, obviously the headlines in the newspapers over the last few days, and we're probably running from Wednesday right through to the weekend, is all about the, the hue and cry about the reduction in the affordable housing budget. Yes. So for the listeners and anyone interested that... Um, the government have sliced 196 million off of the affordable housing budget. If Sounds I like real money, will it? Well, it is, and everybody is up in arms now. Me and you, we'll have we'll have our say in a minute. But yep. when you've got experts like Shelter, like the Roundtree Foundation, and more importantly, the Association of Social Landlords, so that's all the LHOs and LHAs in Scotland. Every single person saying that this is absolute madness. Right. So we've got a crisis with, you know, homelessness. We've got a crisis with people sleeping rough. And certainly now, I believe that 48% of young people um, looking for accommodation will be unsuccessful. So surely, how can cutting a budget be the answer? And... Um if, if I've got this right, Willie, um, multiple local authorities have also declared housing emergencies, Glasgow being the biggest, obviously. Yeah. And the, you know, the local authority is saying we have got an emergency with our housing. We're taking now almost 200 million off the affordable homes budget. I mean, I don't get this, Willie. I mean, yeah. what would you do? I know we're, we're quite excited today. We've got Lord Offord coming yes. in to yes. tell us where the government's going wrong. But what would you do if you were in charge of this, Willie? Well, the first thing I would do is I wouldn't cut the budget. That's <laughs> right, the first thing. Okay. Right, but but you're right, Tom. Uh, Glasgow, Edinburgh and Argyll and Butte have declared emergencies. So there's three of them, is so there, right? Sure, surely there's a huge hint in the word emergency. Yep. Right, so that tells you it isn't something that you can take a knife to. This isn't politics, Willie, because... Glasgow City Council's an SNP council, is that right? Yes. Ah, right. Edinburgh's so they have Labour. declared that. Yeah. So, right, okay. Right. So, so, it's, so it's not politics. No, no, there is there is various um, leaderships of across all the parties not happy with some of the things that are going on. But this, I think, just dwelling on this for a moment, it's, it's ironic that we are cutting back on housing budgets in the same week when the UK government are launching an investigation into the eight largest house builders in Britain in, in relation to collaboration. So basically they're you know, hinting at price fixing or whatever. 
now, Willie, we need to watch. Our lawyers are listening here. I, yes. I can see the red light going on. Yeah. I would a, just a, like to point out my joint venture partner throughout Winchborough, yeah. where we're doing 4,000 homes, is not on the list. So, yeah. Kevin, you can mop your brow now. Yeah. This is the bigger question. How do we get best bang for our buck? How do we get to a situation where we're going to build the amount of houses that we need? I mean, we've mentioned this before. It, before the fintech boom, the barometer for how the UK was doing was all based on how many houses we built that year. That's a fact. Yep. That would be the number one item on the news, on News at 10, away back 40 years ago. I think we have to go back to that, that we are building nowhere near the amount of houses that we require. And this should be a number one priority for any government at the moment. And, and also, Tom, that the two biggest negatives that we have at the moment, right, that are very topical, is one, climate change, and two, is affordable housing. Yep. I think we could turn these two huge negatives into an almighty, enormous benefit. Positive, yeah. yeah. Positive, yeah, because... Why not? The amount of jobs that we could create for young people and apprenticeships, the amount of people we could get back into trades, upskilling people, because we're going to need a lot more people than is available at the moment. We have lost so many tradesmen through lack of training over the past 25 years. It is frightening. And this is an opportunity yeah. where we can work with the government, as we said last week, to try and get all the energy that's supplied into the houses in Scotland is clean energy. You know, SSE and, and Seagreen, 1.6 million houses could be powered by the, the clean energy that we have at the moment and we're only 1.3 million short. So why don't we have, an, you know, a real push on getting there and then build better and larger affordable houses? Let's try and copy the European model where it's not all about uh, it's, it's the end of the world if you don't own your house. Germany and Italy don't think that, right? There's no, no they don't. Thing, no. no such thing as a mortgage. So if we built nicer and bigger houses for people, I am sure we, we use the phrase, oh, we can't go on the property ladder. That's generally used by people trying to buy a house. Yes. There is hundreds of thousands of people at the moment who can't go on the property ladder trying to rent. Yeah. Right. So let's try and create a society where we build nice houses for people. And another thing. Another thing. Another thing. Let's stop using the word social. Social, right. Right? Let's build nice houses at different levels of affordability. So, not that you've asked me, but if I was in charge of it, Willie, and you know the Go Radio Business Show is a no-moan zone. We can moan, but we've got to have a solution. You've put forward your thoughts there. So if I was in charge of this in the Scottish Government, I'd be getting the people round the table who knew what they were talking about. And I would thrash it out because every growth-led economy comes out of recession. And remember, Scotland might not be in a technical recession, but I mean, our growth rate is appalling. Um, and every time to lead an economy to growth, it starts with housing. And so get the people around the table and listen to them. I know they're saying, oh, there's no money. But, and I really want to speak to Malcolm Offord about this, it's 
on the one side of the occasion, we tax businesses and people. The taxes keep going up. On the other side of the equation, the government decides how to allocate and spend its money. There doesn't seem to be any effort to look and see, are we getting value for money in spending? I mean, I hate to go back to it, but I did notice the price of the ferries are back up again this week. It's just unbelievable, that one. Look at the money Lorna Slater wasted on the DRS. Is she being held accountable? I hope she will be at the ballot box because that's the only way we can deal with these, you know, lack of judgment on a uh, MSP, it absolutely falls at her door. 70 million of taxpayers' money. How many teachers, how many social houses could that have been, Willie? Well, you're right, Tom, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned Lorna Slater because to add to the woes of the cutback in the budget, the Green Party in coalition with their partners, the SNP, want to bring a housing bill, right, and, and pass it where they, they believe that they're trying to help tenants and they're trying to m change all the rights over to tenants. This is a disaster waiting to happen. Yep. This will throw fuel on the fire of the problem because me and you know the investors who have been investing in property, the building of houses in Scotland, will look twice if you put in all these restrictions as to what the landlord can do. This will only cut budgets and bringing in new bills. There is no reason to have to do this. What we have to do is to find a clever way how we can build better houses that come at a more competitive price rather than having to introduce laws to guarantee it. Yeah, this, this once again is politicians who frankly don't understand what they're doing. They're writing policy in a vacuum. They're not listening to the commercial side. They won't always agree. Of course they won't. Yeah. But they've got to understand who is it that pays for all these policies. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's businesses and it's the individual taxpayer. And they are being absolutely badly represented here. So just to put a balance on it, that the First Minister has said that this the cuts are due to the UK government's cut of 10% of their overall budget. So we'll, we'll, we'll ask Malcolm about that when he comes on, but this is this is the response from the, the government, which we'll have to see if it stacks up or not. But if it is, it'd have been the last thing still that had a cut. But on that, it's interesting that the Scottish government have asked for a rates freeze across all the local authorities and some are up in arms because they've been threatened not to get a handout for the government if they don't do it. But it's interesting that Councillor Stephen McCabe from Inverclyde has written to Michael Gove this week asking if the Barnet consensual money could be given straight to local authorities <laughs> and cutting out the Scottish <laughs> Government. So that's created a bit of a stushy. Uh -huh. So that'll be interesting when we get Malcolm on. He's obviously a Greenock boy. So that's interesting that the council leader in Greenock is asking for this to happen. But it sounds like a, another Rami waiting to happen. I've got a funny feeling, Tom, it will not be the last that we'll be talking about housing. Just to finish on the Scottish budget, um, we are now going to have six different um, tax bans for income tax in Scotland against yep. three in the rest of the UK. Um, if you're earning more than £28,000 a year in Scotland, you're going to pay more tax than if, if you were across the border in Carlisle yep. or anywhere else in the UK. Um, this is not 
the way to grow an economy. This is not the way to see Scotland flourish. And we, the the people out there need to listen and they need to use their vote. I'm not telling you how to vote. I never will, never, never would, never will. But I'm just telling you, this does not grow an economy. So while we're on about budgets, it's been hinted that Jeremy Hunt is maybe... Yeah, I said it right, Tom. Yes, you did. Um, right. You were very particular there, Willie. Uh, may good. cut national insurance contributions this week rather than income tax. Yet again, cut yeah. them, Willie. Yeah. And, and again, he won't introduce free, that free shopping for tourists. So I, I oh, don't get that one, Willie. That's yeah. such a slam dunk. I don't get why he's not doing that. Maybe Malcolm yeah. knows. Yeah. Um, but I actually get a lot of questions ready for Malcolm here. I hope he's ready for this. Yeah. You know? And what about the, the, the news this week about the CEO of Aberdeen, the kind of asset management company, <laughs> where they've chopped 500 poor people's jobs but he's getting an extra 800 grand, double his wages as a bonus. How does that work? So it doesn't work, Willie. It's as simple as this. I don't mind people getting paid a lot of money. I've paid a lot of my people a lot of money over the years for performance. But I will not pay when there's bad performance. And if some, as you say, poor folk are losing their jobs, while the CEO doubles his wages... In which planet was that right? That is right. not right. Now, to be fair to the guy, under his watch, uh -huh. he has he, he shrank the pre-tax losses for $612 million down to six. Oh, well. I'd have to say, if somebody weren't for me done that, I think I'd be giving him a bonus. <laughs> right? right? I think there might have been a lot more than 500 jobs being lost. But but the timing, it's all about timing, and the timing's not right. Nah. The, the, both of these things break at the same time. So I think going back to um, Jeremy Hunt's budget, which is coming up this week, um, and it does have an impact in Scotland through the Barnett formula and the Barnett consequentials. It's quite, a, it's quite a complicated thing, but Scotland basically gets part of what the rest of the UK gets. But I don't think Jeremy Hunt has got much wriggle room, really. Even in an election year, when he was wishing he did and he could bribe the voters with um, tax cuts, it does sound a lot of money, but in what I was reading, they think he's only got 10 billion. I know that sounds a lot of money, but it's not really. So they are thinking maybe NI, maybe income tax, maybe fuel duty, maybe cut the growth in the public sector spending. You know, the tax that we're paying over this current parliament has gone up by about £66 billion. Now, I understand COVID was in there and there was all the giveaways and there was all the cheap money and all the rest of it. So we, we are still paying for COVID. I understand that. But I don't think Jeremy Hunt has got many sweeties to bribe the electorate with. All we can hope for is, is that, that we don't get the markets being spooked again the way they did under Liz Trust when they started talking about announcing unfunded tax cuts. I think Liz Trust was a one-off and I hope Goodness <laughs> <laughs> and so see all of us. Yeah. So see all of us. <clears throat> so um, yeah, we bit news here about the Edinburgh-based Logan Energy. They yeah. specialise in hydrogen systems and have just received five million in funding boosts. With more than half of it coming from a Singapore-based investment house. Yeah. Great to see that Scottish innovation has been backed by the likes of SE can leverage in international money. This is how you do it. So Patrick Harvey, this is what growth's all about. 
about. This is it. And another wee, wee bit of good news, a former Edge winner, Scottish Edge, you heard, and Kingdom Technologies, they raised £1.4 million, Scottish Enterprise, and again, the founders of Skype. I actually had dinner with the founder of Skype um, last week, very interesting fella from Scandinavia, and they are producing, Willie, robotic lawnmowers. Now, I, I know you've got a big lawn up in the farm there, so maybe just a <laughs> robot to cut it now. <laughs> I need a few robots, I think. But, it, but it's interesting that we've touched on, you know, clean energy and we've touched on hydrogen. See that a new study from Energy and Climate Intelligence, new, Good News have reported that net zero, the economy, has grew by an impressive 9% in 2023. Fantastic. Right, and this this for us this refers to businesses operating in everything from electric cars to green finance to renewables, and this could be seen as further evidence of the growth opportunities in this sector, and especially in Scotland. Well, last week a few people said to me, "Willie's flying the green flag. What's what's news in that?" But it was the green energy flag, Willie. No, I was only flying out. after he too late goes against Murrow last week. It had nothing to do with the climate. I can assure you. <laughs> uh, Scotland leading the world come on we need more of this The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey this week's special guest is Lord Offord Minister for Exports and Parliamentary Under Secretary of State he's also a Regent of Edinburgh University and a trustee of the Duke of Edinburgh's award so Tom this week we have a very special guest and we're absolutely thrilled that he's managed to make it here in his busy schedule Lord Malcolm Offord Malcolm Good welcome yeah it's great thank you Malcolm, I'm feeling a wee bit out-titled with you two today. I am the knight between two lords. <laughs> so it's not often I feel inferior, but today I'm inferior. Yeah. So we'll make sure that we'll set the rules right away. It's going to be Malcolm, Wally and Tam, right? None of these titles. <laughs> but he's always welcome to come in for a, a glass of wine in the House of Lords if you invite him, Wally, right? That stuff that we get when we get the subsidy. You know? <laughs> I, th- I think I'm banned, Malcolm. I think I'm banned. Great to have you here. Let like you tell the listeners a wee bit about your story. Yeah, so I was one of six kids and we grew up in Greenock. My father was actually from a naval family in Portsmouth. My mother was from a working farming family up in Aberdeenshire. And actually, as my grandfather was sent to Hong Kong with the Royal Naval Dockyard, and he was an engineer and he was trying to work out how to get to, um, um, uh, torpedoes to move in the water. And they had a lovely life out there. And then the Second World War broke out and they got a letter from home saying, you've got, to, you've got to come back. And apparently my grandmother was devastated because we were really enjoying life in, in Hong Kong. So you got to come back. And then the last line it said, by the way, you're being posted to Greenock. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, where the hell is Greenock? Right? And of course, it turned out there was a big munitions factory down in Greenock that's where right. all the missiles were being built. And that's why my grandfather ended up going there. So that was a wee English family dropped into the, in, in the Greenock and just at the wartime. Yeah. Wow. And, how, and how was that experience growing up in Greenock? Well, I mean, I, I, I had a great childhood there, I have to say. Uh, I mean, I was I was born just in, the, in on Bank Street, just at number 33, and I went back there recently, and the wee tenement there still standing. And I was born at home, right, because there were six kids, and all the kids were born in uh, Rankin Memorial Hospital, but I was the third one, and for some reason I popped out fast, and as my mother said, I've been in a hurry ever since. So, um, <laughs> But, you know, I enjoyed growing up in Greenock, and uh, I got a great education. I went to my local primary school, our gown primary. I went to my local secondary school, Green Academy. 
and then I went through to Edinburgh University. Uh, and at the time going to Edinburgh, it was like, you know, it was almost like, you know, you're a traitor. Why are you, you should be going to Glasgow University. But I just wanted, <laughs> I just had a feeling I wanted to get up and out in a way. Um, uh, and, and so I went through to Edinburgh and that was great. And then I went off to London. And what did you do when you got to London? So I was doing, I, I read a law degree, right? Which I, I have to say, I didn't enjoy that, right? But when you came out of our school like that, you basically, you were bright, you were told you got to be a doctor, lawyer, an accountant. Nobody said, like, what's your favourite subject, you know? So I studied law, which I didn't enjoy at all. And Big Bang had just happened, um, 1986. Suddenly there was jobs going in London, right? So I couldn't get a job as a lawyer uh, in Edinburgh. Probably I didn't go to the right school. So I thought, I'll apply for London instead. And I filled out all these application forms uh, and I managed to get two uh, interviews and one job offer. Uh, sorry, four job interviews and two job offers. Anyway, I got the job and I remember going to the St Andrews bus station and I was starting work on the 6th of October 1987. That was a Monday, right? So I got to the bus station on, and I had one suitcase and my rugby kit and a £2,000 overdraft, right? <laughs> and I went to the wee uh, lassie at the, at the ticket booth and said, I want an overnight, I want an overnight ticket on the stagecoach, you know, cheap way to get to London on a Saturday night. I knew one person, knew one person, and I was going to sleep on his floor, right? <laughs> um, and the wee lassie said, that'll be £1.99, but don't you want a return ticket? That'll be £2.99. I remember saying, well, I'm not coming back. Wow. Uh, wow. And that was me off on my journey. I went into Lazard. Uh, I joined Lazard. I didn't really know what that was, but it was a merchant bank, investment bank. Uh, it turned out I was the only kid they'd ever employed from a comprehensive school. All right. And I think that's because I, I changed my CV. Instead of saying Green Academy, just put The Academy. Right? <laughs> so I managed to wang my way into Lazard. Right? And I remember a uh, completely uh, alien environment to me. Uh, it was all full of people who had been at public school and everything, and I was trying to find my way around. And I remember... Um, on the first week, uh, I've managed to navigate my first week. And then I overheard two directors saying, well, we've got these five graduates that arrived. We need to give them a wee party on Friday night. Why don't we have a wine tasting? I was thinking, well, I've never been to one of those, so why not I pitch up at that? So I turned up on the fifth floor director's dining room and all the wine was laid out and everybody was queuing up one end <laughs> with the clipboards and everything, talking about the bonded warehouse. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a queue at that end. I'll go down the other end. <laughs> I'm an enterprising Scott. I'll just walk up the other way. So I grabbed myself quite a full measure. <laughs> just about to drink it and the old boy that had Ned Donny who I owe so much to he recruited he took a chance on me he brought me in right he put his hand on my arm and said Malcolm he said, don't drink that I said why is that he said that's the olive oil <laughs> brilliant brilliant so uh, did, did, did he, he said to me afterwards by the way he said to me he said to me about six months later he said, he said Malcolm that's a bit odd did, why, why did you do that did you not notice that the, the bottle was covered in brown paper I said, yeah, but where I come from, I said, they serve the one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's oh. a good story. Oh, people in Greenland are jumping out the windows. That's it. So you're, you're now in the markets. Where do you go from Lazard? Well, I, I mean, it's funny because back then, uh, I mean, I arrived there uh, basically with no real training. I hadn't, like, I, wasn't, I hadn't done any financial training. So I managed to get a really good apprenticeship at Lazard. And then I was involved in a transaction where BP were selling all the non-oil uh, and gas revenue. So I guess what happened was in the 70s, the 74 oil crash, the then chief executive BP said, we're overexposed to oil and gas, why don't we build diversity? So they built 15% of the revenue non-oil and gas. And then in the 80s or the 90s, the new chief executive came along and said, why have we got non-oil and gas? We just sell it, right? <laughs> and that's how M&A works, right? You buy right. and sell. So I was involved in selling 15% of BP's assets, um, most of which went to private equity firms. And that's where I got the, the bug for that, which is like, I want to get as close as I can 
to being in the bank, being running a company without actually being a, an actual operator, but can I get into private equity? And so that's what I went off to 3i because that's where you practice using other people's money. And then I went into Charterhouse and had a good career there. So we should explain to people that we call people like you entrepreneurs, good at being an entrepreneur with somebody else's money. <laughs> Well, this is the point. OPM. OPM. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. OPM. Yeah. And obviously, London, for many, many years, do you get pains to come back home or are you totally happy? You didn't buy a return ticket. No, I mean, I was very uh, happy in London. The, the, the thing about the, the city was it's just full of Scots. Yeah. All right. So everywhere you went, it was it was Scottish, and you had a brand. You had a bit of a brand yeah. coming down. There were different groups of people would come to the city, but if you were part of the Scottish community, it was like you were very well respected uh, yeah. by the English and by the international by the by, by international markets. You were considered to be well educated, and yeah. we worked hard, and we were we were we were smart, you know. Yeah. And especially in venture capital, then private equity, which, which at the start was a bit unfashionable. It was the Scots guys that were really led the way in venture capital. And you think yeah. back to Three I when it started off that yeah. was actually a Scottish based institution so you sort of I got the feeling very much that um, London was was my city you know it wasn't yeah. like I wasn't you know I wasn't in England Alien. I wasn't I wasn't in England I was yeah. in London you yeah. know and and uh, I played rugby for London Scottish and a big Scottish community there uh, and we did well and, and we had a you know that was a time of deregulation so you know uh, the Companies Act 1981 was a big deal because that was Nigel Lawson that said we've got to deregulate and make it easier to do business. Yeah. So before that, you couldn't do buyouts because you couldn't use your own balance sheet as collateral to take a loan, and that got changed, and so suddenly we now got buyouts. And I think what you and and Tom would get would understand back then is it's just this, it just released the deregulation yeah. releases entrepreneurial energy, yeah. right? Yeah. And out of that, the Scots are really good. We're good in broken play. We're smart. You know, we see the gap. And I felt very proud, actually, as a Scot in London, being part of that community. Yeah. So, Malcolm, tell me, tell me about Charterhouse, because we never actually came across each other much during this time. I was selling my trainers and you were doing Charterhouse. What, what would the listeners, a business that you bought and maybe ultimately sold that the business, the listeners might might know? Well, uh, I mean, the, the, char the Charterhouse well, that, that I joined was run by another Scot, a guy called Gordon Bonham, and before that, previously been run by uh, Robert Smith, as in Ro Robert, Lord, yeah. Lord yep. Smith of Kelvin and Norman Murray. So again, very much a Scottish uh, invention. Uh, and we did at that time we were we would be involved in a lot of the big companies were unbundling. You remember all the big leisure companies like Whitbread and Bass, whatever. Yes, yeah. You know, they would all be selling down the non-core assets. Yeah. And the first deal I did was Pearson was uh, was selling the, Pearson was transforming into an education company. Uh-huh. And it was selling off as non-core. So one of the things that we bought, I, my first deal was buying Madame Tussauds. Wow. All right. right. Okay. Right, so we got Man of Two Sods out of, and, and that was out in Alton Towers, a theme park as well, and uh, Thorpe Park. But I remember at the time we were trying to do the rollout of the Man of Two Sods internationally, and we we had a, we took it to New York, uh, and we took it to Las Vegas, and uh, and and we took it to Australia, and we had a travelling show, and it was like uh, apparently every single guidebook I've ever written in London has got Man of Two Sods in it. So that was yeah. that was quite a good start. So you, in using football parlance, you can say that Pearson sold you a dummy. 
Oh. Well, I, I was going to tell you, but I don't know whether I can say this, but maybe you can cut it out. But um, at the time, it was because it, it was in the paper today about Monica Lewinsky being back, right? Yeah. With our uh -huh. fashion brand. At the time we did this, uh, the, the scandal was on with Bill Clinton saying, uh, you know, having no such relations with Monica Lewinsky. And we had Bill Clinton. Uh, in the travelling exhibition in Australia, and every uh -huh. single day we had to repair his trousers. Oh dear! And the, <laughs> so you know, just yeah. I think uh, we can leave that. In. <laughs> so, so obviously, way back then, you probably never thought about politics, never thought about getting involved in politics. How did you manage to get where you are today in the, in the House of Lords? Well, that's because of COVID, right? Yeah. Because I started shouting at the telly <laughs> when we all went mad, <laughs> sitting at home, 2020, 21. And I had, you know, I'd come out of the city age 50. I retired from Charterhouse at 50. I came back to uh, Edinburgh and I set up my own little sort of venture firm. And I had this thing where I was investing in businesses that passed as we test. I made up called MISA which is M-I-S-S-A, which means made in Scotland, sold abroad. Right. And my view was having having seen the businesses going, a small country like Scotland, five million people, can, the business can only thrive, really, if we sell to a much bigger market. Obviously, the bigger market immediately is the other 60 million people in the rest of the United Kingdom, but that if we can have businesses that export, we can support communities and create jobs by selling our product around the world. So I was I was very happy doing that, but that meant I was I'm now back in Edinburgh. I'm living in Scotland, and you know it's no secret that you know I'm, I don't believe in the the separatist cause, uh, not because I'm not. I mean I'm an, I'm a proud patriotic Scot, but I happen to believe that Scotland we can make Scotland the most prosperous part of the United Kingdom. I think the way to do that is to use all the to tools that we have inside the UK. Totally agree. Right? My ambition should be we should make Scotland the most fair, the most prosperous, the most green country in the UK, right? Yeah. But let's do it inside the UK by using the tools. Because why go and create a new toolbox? you got one there, right? Couldn't agree more. Right? So, uh, so the, obviously the 2014 referendum came and went, and I was unhappy with what I was seeing in Holyrood. And I thought to myself, you know, I need to do something about this. And I hadn't, I wasn't even a member of the Tory party at that point. Um, I thought, right, I might think of it standing for 21, 21 election, right? Now, I didn't even know my local association, so I had to get to know them. And, of course, it was COVID. I couldn't meet anybody. Um, I managed to get myself signed up as a candidate, but I couldn't go canvassing, right? You weren't allowed out. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this is a complete waste of time. What am I doing here? And so I, I sat myself down and wrote myself a letter, as you do, and it was about why should Scotland stay in the UK? <laughs> that ended up becoming seven essays because uh, it just sort of all comes out, right? And they got picked up by Reform Scotland and The Spectator published and uh, CPS, uh, Policy Studies wrote one. And that must have come to the attention of um, the sort of high hegens. And so the election came and went, and oh, that was the end of that. I've got on with my life now. I got a phone call from Alistair Jack who had met once before, about a year before. And he said, Malcolm, I've been seeing what you've been doing there. Um, do you want to come and help me in the Scotland office? And I said, aye, love to. What, what, how do I do that? What's the, what's the job? The job is to is to keep build the union, make, make the UK more visible in Scotland. I said, well, I can do that. And they said, well, how do I do that, though? Because I'm not elected. He laughed at me down the phone. He said, you haven't got it yet, have you? I said, no. He said, he said I'll put you in the Lords. Right. Wow. <laughs> so well, that was that. So did did you have to say, wait a minute, I'll need to think about this, I'll come back to you? Or did you just immediately say, 
Well, the problem is I couldn't think of a, I couldn't think of a reason to say no. <laughs> because I am very ambitious for Scotland. I'm very, very ambitious for Scotland. And there's a narrative going on up here that we don't punt, that we're, we're losing out and that we don't matter anymore. And, you know, I, my career was in London and just, you know, all that time in London, I felt we were all, we were, we, we punch above our weight, you know? Yeah. And I see that, and I see that in government all the time. I see Scots in government, we punch above our weight. And I sort of think, you know, we have 8% of the population, right? And 33% of the geography. And I think it's incumbent on every Scot, whatever we do, we do better than 8%. Yeah. Right? You know, so for example, you know, we, we'll do 25% of the wind power in Scotland, you know? We do one third of food and drink exports from Scotland. We do our university get 15% of research grants. Yeah. So I always think that whatever we do in Scotland, we have to do better than 8%. Because that's what that's in our DNA. We punch yeah. above our weight. So I came in, and my my motivation for coming in was to make Scott to make the UK more visible in Scotland, to make Scotland understand that we we really matter in London. Well, keep up the good work. And, and Malcolm, can I can I ask you? Because um, I'm always really interested in people who make that jump from business to politics. What's been the biggest surprise that you've had in it? And are you finding it easier or harder than you first thought? Right, good question. I mean, when I, so when, when I came in, Alistair Jack said to me, look, you know, I don't know if you'll be any good at this because, <laughs> you know, not, not everybody from business makes it in politics, right? No, definitely not. Um, and he said, but if you are any good, and he said, and I think you will be, if you are any good, he said, you'll get poached. You know, because you'll, they'll, they'll, if you do well in Scotland, obviously another big department will come in for you. And that's what's happened. I've, not, I've been moved across now to the Department of Business and Trade. I'm now working directly for Kemi Badenoch. I've got the exports brief. And in fact, actually, just last Wednesday, we were in, in Glasgow doing the Made in Scotland Sold the World Roadshow. And we had 150 companies, SMEs in there with 80 uh, uh, listening in. And what we're doing here is pushing the export uh, agenda for, for Scottish SMEs, right? And I thought to myself, you know, the big banner says, you know, uh, made in Scotland, sold the world. I was thinking that goes back. They stole that from me. I was made in Scotland, sold abroad, remember? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in, in some ways, Tom, therefore, this is natural territory for me. You know, okay. uh, you know, uh, but but can you get things done, Malcolm? But what I was saying was the business bit is natural territory. The bit that's been more difficult. Right, the bit that's been more difficult has been the parliamentary bit, yeah, and the and the polit the, the 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 politics. But people have said to me, um, Malcolm, you 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 sound different in politics because you don't you try and answer the question, and you're not <laughs> you, you you try and answer the question, and you're not having a ruck all the time. But actually, sometimes in politics, you need to attack as well as defend. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not used to the knockabout of that in quite the same way as perhaps professional politicians have been. And the parliamentary stuff, you've got to learn how to do. What one thing I have. I've noticed, Tom, is that you know, if you're dealing with a, a problem in business, or let's say you're doing, you're trying to present something to a board, you would you would spend a bit of time building the case by saying, "Here's the problem." Like you were talking about housing, here's the problem we got with housing, uh, here's the background to it, and, and then you'd finish with, "Here's the solutions, and here's the punchline. What we're going to do." Yeah. Politics, you don't have time to do that. You got to flip. What I've learned is you got to flip it around the other way. Yeah. You got to start with the punchline. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do. Right. And then you backfill. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's the same skills, but just a different way of presenting it. Unfortunately, a lot of time, <laughs> they don't do the backfill. <laughs> uh, yeah. I always remember, Malcolm, when we, we brought President Obama to Edinburgh, um, which was a great night, and I did a wee round table. I think I think you were at it, Willie. Yeah. And um, Martin Sorrell, 
there was maybe 15 of us around the table with President Obama, who's a bit of a hero of mine. And um, Martin Sorrell kind of said, so, Mr. President, tell me, you know, I'm surely you haven't got a lot done during your tenure. So I thought it was very brave of him. And um, Obama just kind of looked at Martin Sorrell and he said, well, Martin, in your business, you're the boss. And it's probably fair to say that most of the people around your board table are behind you. Maybe you've got one or two. He says, when I was elected, 50% of the country were against me. And some of, if not all of my own party were against me as well. So it's no wonder I didn't get anything done. And Martin Sorrell just kind of shut up after that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, would, I think it's a good point. But I think actually in this, in the, in the timing, maybe the timing's been good. But I would say I've been part of Scotland. The Scotland office in the last three years has been, I think, the most, in, the most engaged Scotland office in Scotland since devolution. Okay. There was an element, I would say, where there was a bit of devolve and forget, where London sort of said, well, that's now devolved to the, to Scotland and just almost give them the money and disappear, right? Yeah. Under Alistair Jack, I think the Scotland office has been the most engaged in Scotland. First of all, we've had the whole levelling up agenda, which has been fantastic for the projects that we've supported. So that, you know, coming out of Brexit, we've actually been able to deploy a lot of that money direct into communities across the whole of Scotland. In my job... Now, will you, can in, I ask you, sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, my bit interrupting a politician here. Um, were you for or against Brexit? I was for Brexit, marginally. You were? Yes. Oh, yeah, welcome. Yeah, I was a Brexiteer for trade. Here's the, here's the reason why. Because when our parents voted to go into the common market, which was then called Europe, account of a one-third of global trade. When we came out in 2019, that was 16% of global trade. And by 2050, it's going to be 9% of global trade. The world is tilting to the east, right? We've just joined this thing called the CPTPP, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We just got America's place in that because Trump took them out to make America great again, right? Last time I looked at the map, we weren't anywhere near the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And yet we've just got ourselves in this club of 12 countries with 15% of the GDP and 40% of the world's great consumers, and they all want to buy product made in Scotland. Yep. Right, so we've got a great trading opportunity. So putting aside the geography and the politics and the culture, Tom, as a from a pure trading position, we made a very clever trading decision on this. Yeah, I, only time will tell. I would, I would probably disagree with you on that one. But anyway, but time will tell. Um, but time will tell. That's, that's for another Rami on a different day, Mal. Can, can I just say you and and I agree with you. Malcolm, that there has been a shift in the last three years, and 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 I think especially the the levelling up money. No, I think Michael Gove been in position. You've got that Scottish yourself, Alistair. I I think that especially what you've done in the last couple of years. Taught me to tell you some of the initiatives, like you know, getting money straight for the UK government now to help with grassroots football. Uh -huh. I don't think Scottish government, UK government have put money into grassroots football for over 30 years. Correct. And there's twenty-two million pounds being spent. And I have seen the fruits of this, and it's it's welcome. And and thanks to everybody. We have always said that no matter what the politics are, if we believe that people are doing the right thing, we will applaud that. Of course. And I would certainly say that the, the DCMS money that's flowed into Scotland has been has been fantastic well one thing i'd say on that is i mean it was part of my job to to build those relationships and there's 32 local authorities in scotland as you know 
And before this, this current Scotland office, there was minimal contact between the 32 local authorities and the Scotland office, i.e. UK government. Right. In the last three years, four years, we have built strong relationships with these 32 local authorities. And you can ask them yourself, because they say to me that they are delighted with the level of engagement they have. We talk about, uh, we've got, we're aspirational for them. We encourage them to think about a 10-year plan for their area. It doesn't matter which party they come from. They all want what's best in the local communities, right? Yeah. And we've got enthusiasm and we've also got money and they say they get none of that from the Scottish government. Yeah. Well, good on you, Malcolm. So on that, big question for you, the big talking point this week has obviously been the slashing of £196 million from the housing grant budget in Scotland. And the First Minister has put the blame right at the door of the UK government for, in his words, slashing their budget by 10%. Is this the reason? No. <laughs> because here's yeah. the thing. Here's the thing. You know, Wherever the rights and wrongs are, everyone agrees that the JERS numbers are the right numbers. Alex Salmon agreed those are the numbers, Nicola Sturgeon, right? And for, for, as far as the UK is concerned, for every £100 spent in England, £125 spent in Scotland, yeah. right? So here's the thing. The money that comes from the Treasury to Scotland goes without any strings attached. There's no other uh, devolved situation in the world that works like that. I mean, the federal government in Washington doesn't send money to the states. Berlin and Germany doesn't send it to the landers without there being some accountability. So we send the money. The money goes from London to, to Scotland. It's up to Scotland then to, to decide how to spend that money. Right. right. Now, here's the thing. The Scottish government in the last 16 years have promoted what they call a welfare economy. And that is that is fine, and they're entitled to do that. And that has involved record amounts of spending on welfare and a lot of free uh, things to the community. Prescriptions, yep, yeah, bus travel, yeah. Right, and which is all great. We all love that. And a record amount of, of pay to the public sector, where the public sector is now paying £19 an hour, private sector £16 an hour, minimum wage £11.44. Now, they're entitled to absolutely do that, but the flip side of that coin is that the biggest budget cuts are now going in education, local authorities, housing and the police, okay? Now, you've got to grow up and take responsibility for the decision you make. You've decided that you want to, that's your priority in money. Yeah. But, the, but the, the, the other side of the coin is when your budget, you know, which is a generous budget, you've got to work out what you've got to cut. And that's, that's, they, are, they are living with their own budget and their own decisions and they've decided what they've got to cut and they've got to, they've got to answer the people on that. So the people of Scotland now know so, listen, I, I I think it's refreshing to hear a politician who, obviously, Malcolm, you come from the world of business, but um, we say it in this show far too often <laughs> that we all probably agree we want to see Scotland flourish. We probably all agree about the civil society that we want to have in Scotland, but we understand that how that gets paid. You know, it's businesses, it's individuals who pay their taxes, create jobs. That's what makes the world go round. There is nothing free. You don't get a free prescription. Somebody has paid for that on behalf of someone else. And um, I got really annoyed at the SNP party political broadcast where it was just, we get this for free, we get that for free. It's not free. Somebody has toiled to pay for that. And that's fine. Those with the broader shoulders should carry the biggest burden. I'm all for it. But let's not kid on. It's not free. Yeah, but you, the, I agree, everyone agrees with broader shoulders. But right now, you've now got, 12% of the population, 12% of the working population paying 65% of the tax. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, you can't, you can't, and no one can argue that that is the body's shoulders paying. Agreed. That's two thirds of the tax. The question is, how far do you push it? 
And if you end up with, you know, the tax being so high in Scotland that all our young people don't want to be here, the entrepreneurs don't want to be here, you can't entice senior executives to come and run you know, our, our corporations, even the public services, you know, we've, we, we, we've gone too far. And, and that's, you know, with 40% of, of the working population not paying any tax and 20% of the lowest tax, it's, 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 we're, we're running already a very progressive tax situation. Yeah. But we've got to create wealth. We've got yes. to create wealth and we've got to encourage the people who do create the wealth. Yeah, yeah. and this example you've just given is, is death by a thousand tax rises. Yeah. Right, seriously. And and the the quicker that people get this, that it's free enterprise that actually will, will help you in all of these sectors, right? So for people in the public sector who think that they can get, you know, rises that they last for 12%, 14%, it all comes from how we're taxing the other side. And the point that you make is, people will get fed up contributing too much, right? When you live in a society where 12% represents 65% of the tax take, that is an imbalance. But I also think there's also a lot of unintended consequences because what I observe on these things, whether it's that housing, you know, landlords levy or the rent freeze or, you know, or the deposit return scheme, it always comes back to hurt in the poorest the most. Yes, it does. You know, the councils, the councils have had their budgets slashed, right? Yeah. You know, welfare spending has gone up by 15% per annum through the Nicola Sturgeon years. The councils have only gone up at a third of that rate. So now the councils are struggling for money. They're all ring-fenced. They get very little spending money. So then they turn around and put, for example, in Glasgow, just put you know, put parking charges until ten o'clock at night. Yeah. Oh, who don't that start us at that, Malcolm. But who does that hurt? Who does that hurt? You less. You less. The people hurt? with the old cars. Who does that hurt? It hurts <laughs> the people who are on lower incomes, who are working the hardest through unsociable hours. It's just putting. A t you know, it comes back to by I think the most vulnerable, and it's just not. It's, it's, it's just, it's, we just need to be better at explaining this somehow. You know. So I think we've got a first here. We've got. Lords from different political persuasions violently agreeing. Um, I wish I was in the studio with you to, to witness Ma Malcolm this. Malcolm was beginning to sound like a socialist there. I was wanting <laughs> to keep him going. <laughs> but isn't the you point that if you take the politics out of this, we want a prosperous Scotland. 100%. Right? We, we want do. a fair Scotland, don't we? We want a green Scotland, right? Yes. But we've got to do it in a balanced way and we've got to take everybody with us. And when it gets out of balance, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's it. Malcolm, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to come. It's been great to see you both. Thanks so much. And Malcolm, I love the story of Greenock. I didn't know that about you. Um, you've went up in my estimation. You were already high, but um, thanks for coming on and keep doing what you're doing. I love Missa. I'm going to use it as my own, if you don't mind. Very good. I'll charge you royalty. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Cheers, Tom. Cheers, Tom. The border you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. So, Tom, on the board you can't afford this week, we have Michael Alatarus, founder of Alien Products. Tell the listeners a wee bit about yourself, Michael, and a bit about your business. Um, so, 20 years ago, I became a dentist, and it's been an amazing journey. And to watch the technology develop within that profession has been incredible. And essentially, you know, the engineering involved was a real passion of mine and I loved all that, the design engineering that we do every day. But the thing that was kind of nagging at the back of my mind was that we're essentially fixing something that could have been prevented. So prevention was a big passion of mine, but I was at the fixing end of things. And I noticed this pattern of dental problems, and this is it. So 75% of adults lose a tooth, okay? But it's what happens after that. The teeth adjacent to the gap that they now have cannot be cleaned with current toothbrushes. 
And, you know, there's this domino effect of disease. You lose a tooth and then you end up with this new problem. You know, watching patients try to work around the current tools, coaching them for years, patients crying in the chair because they can't control this disease. And even though we're training them, I thought something has to be done. Enough is enough. So I sold my practice and looked at a solution. It needs to be something ergonomic that can reach these proximal surfaces. So I designed the Ergoprox toothbrush. So I got in with writing a patent. It's like 12,000 words long. It's sitting in the US, Europe and China. I worked with over 100 other dental professionals to just perfect that design, just to understand what they would like to prescribe to their patients. So we set up manufacturing here in Glasgow, thankfully, and it launched a couple of months ago. And it's been met with a unanimous acclaim, um, overnight results for patients. Um, it's what the profession's been crying out for. And it works in anybody's hands, you know. So it's, it's a case of where to go from here and why has this never been addressed in the two or three hundred years that we've been extracting teeth. It's a whole new toothbrush architecture and it works. And there are probably around a billion people on the planet that actually have this issue and don't have a tool to use at home to prevent the problems. So let me ask you, um, you say that obviously hygienists throughout the country, in fact, you should have been an engineer, not a dentist, right? <laughs> People want to get to the heart of the problem, right? Not the solution. So um, when I when I went to my hygienist last year, mm -hmm. that she kind of had the wee go at me and said, you're not doing enough, right? We, you know, your, your dental care. Mm -hmm. uh, she says, you're spending all this money getting your teeth done, but you're not brushing your teeth enough. So she recommended to me that I go and buy a Philips 500, if that sounds right, if I remember, uh -huh. Uh -huh. which I think cost me about £70 or something mm -hmm. or something like that anyway, and mm -hmm. hopefully that's made, you know, it's, it's made a difference. So tell me, what's the cost of your new super-duper toothbrush? It's a manual brush to begin yeah. with. Yeah. You know, it needs to be an accessible price point. So yeah. it's around £4. Wow. And... It works. Right. And it's that simple, you know, five seconds, right. twice a day right. for the rest of your life. Wow. It doesn't need any instruction. Mm -hmm. the, the layout of the bristles, the ergonomics are so forgiving yeah. that it's meant to work in anyone's yeah. hands, you know. And are these only for the gaps? Are they for to do your... That's right, it's only for the gaps. Right. And, you know, it will sit alongside yeah. anyone's electric toothbrush. Yes. And it's funny... Or the normal the, toothbrush. Yeah, <laughs> you see these adverts on TV and it's, you know, models with full sets of teeth yeah. and I just laugh because it doesn't reflect 75% of the population. Correct. I'm like, can we just address this elephant yeah. in the room here? There's this other issue that's in parallel with what the electric so toothbrush So what's your addresses, question you know? for the board? The question is, well, I have, you know, options of, for example, going direct to consumer, out licensing the IP, manufacturing it under private label, for example, for other brands, uh, supplying dental practices directly. And I would love to do all of the above, but Perhaps there's an ideal order to do those in, and you might have a suggestion mm -hmm. for that. And at the moment, it's just me, so I am recruiting, uh, but it's kind of where, what would be the first one or two steps out of those choices that would make the most sense in this position, you know? So d do you think you're now beyond the pilot stage of proved it works? It's there, everybody? Absolutely. Right, and yeah. so how many units would you have out there at the moment? There are probably 5,000 units sitting wow. out there just now right. in use and right. being reviewed by the professionals, right. you know. And and did would you try and see if you could get feedback from most of those people, you know? Yes, the feedback has 
returned and it's been consistently positive. It's been right. a unanimously positive right. result. So right. the, the credentials are there now. Right. I just need to. So make your a question is, what's the it? fastest and easiest way to market into volume? Something <laughs> that won't kind of destroy the business in the yeah. process, you know. Right. Okay. Um, so it's a case of that. So I take it at the moment, because you've not had much or any equity put into it, that it's all about trying to find the best and easiest and most cost-effectiveness to get to the market, right? Yeah, that's it. Right. So I would say to you that, that this could be something that could be unique and it could be something that could sell a lot, but I, my advice would be is to make this a slow burner, mm-hmm. right? Um, try to get big marketing big advertising, overnight success could kill you, mm-hmm. right? And that mm-hmm. happens to a lot of people with a good idea and a good product. So I think the route that you've went down at the moment is is that by selling it into hygienists, but then hygienists, like my hygienist, that then recommends to the people who come in there what they should buy, mm-hmm. right? right? And I think if you had them doing that for you and you would see sales grow, mm-hmm. you know, um, at a rate where you could manage it, Yes. You know, and especially if you're uh, if you're manufacturing in, in Glasgow. But what will happen is it's the usual. Someday, one day, some celebrity will get one mm-hmm. and they'll go online and go, wow. <laughs> so what you're trying to do here is build a reputation. And that's certainly my advice. I would I would wait until you could say, I'm in every dental surgery mm-hmm. in Scotland mm-hmm. and now I'm in every dental surgery in the UK. Yeah. People, every one of those places now is a sales outlet for you. Yes. And what you might want to do is, if you can afford that, is to put samples in that place. But the problem you've got is, is that you're coming to this for a different angle. A lot of people think that the dentist is a cash cow and they can't wait to pull your teeth out, mm. right? And you're trying to maybe stop the Prevent. flow of traffic <laughs> into dentists. Now, if they've got, now to be fair, yeah. there's so much work for dentists just now, I'm sure that's not oh, the case today. A real crisis right? at the so I'm sure right. that all dentists would love to be able to stop things happening. So Absolutely. if you get yeah. that buy in through the industry, and you just give yourself a target of, you know, start in Glasgow, then head to Lanarkshire, mm-hmm. Lovians, the borders. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, you know, yeah. people telling people, going to conventions. Yeah. When, and it's you know, what I'm most familiar with because yeah. I'm from the profession. Yeah. So it's yeah. uh, I, I would My advice would be is to build channel. it slowly. And what will happen is one day something will happen to make it a boom. <laughs> and then see. you'll need to come back with a different question. Yeah, he's right? How do I get funding to build a hundred square foot factory? <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's open. Good Thanks, luck. Willie. Thanks Good luck. Much. Hope that was yeah. I hope that was valuable. Absolutely. Thank you. Pleasure to have you on. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode. Go.